Well, good evening. It's good to see everybody. Take your Bible, open the New Testament to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 8. I'll pick it up reading in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans 8, verse 28. text says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. We're working our way through the text here in Romans chapter 8 here in the evenings, and admittedly, um, we're working our way through the material rather slowly. I got that. But I think the material is very important. I think it's critical for us to have an understanding. It's very rich, obviously, in doctrinal truth. The Holy Spirit wants us to understand these truths. It's, again, his word pinned through the Apostle Paul. So I think we need to know this carefully, and we need to be aware of it and then encouraged by the truth. I told you that um, theologians throughout the decades, really even centuries, have called the portion of scripture we're looking at God's golden chain of salvation or sometimes it's called the golden chain of five links because it's the most comprehensive view of the saving grace of God that can be found anywhere in the Bible and we're looking at salvation our salvation from God's perspective and the golden chain as it were is forged in eternity past and it stretches all the way through eternity future and the five links that make up this golden chain of salvation, the five doctrines that are laid out before us are foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, justification, and then glorification. And so far we've looked at the first two links in this golden chain in some detail. We've looked at the doctrines of foreknowledge and predestination. And again, they've been very clearly laid out, and we've come to see them as we've studied them that they're not something dreadful, they're not some kind of doctrine that turns God into some kind of a monster, as sadly many people falsely say, even amazingly some prominent evangelicals, as I've told you. But rather, the doctrines are very wonderful. That God in his mercy and his grace has seen fit to set his special love uh, upon sinners whom he has chosen, uh, in order that they might be delivered from sin's bondage. And it's God in his mercy and his great love before the foundation of the world, he has marked out certain sinners to be the special objects of his grace, so that they might become conformed to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that they might look more like Jesus. So again, far from being doctrines, doctrines that either crush justice or make God a tyrant or deny human freedom or destroy the motivation for evangelism, uh, these doctrines, again, foreknowledge and predestination are, in fact, the very opposite of all these things. And we saw that last time as we answered some of the most common objections uh, to these most wonderful biblical truths. Now, obviously, you hear the weather in the background. It is what it is, okay? Uh, this is the safest building to be in the entire county of green, right? So trust me, you're, you're good, right? This building took an F5 a few years back in the 70s, right? It'll handle whatever's coming. So sit here until we tell you not to, all right? Now, again, when we speak of uh, doctrines of predestination and foreknowledge, we're speaking of God's mercy, and we're speaking of his compassion, and we're speaking of his great love with which we loved us, and so, therefore, we're speaking of his grace. 
Now, again, these kind of doctrines, when you have a proper understanding of these doctrines, they really cause us to praise God more, to worship him, to love him, uh, and, and to love his dear son even more. Now, tonight, uh, we're moving along here in verse 30, and we come to the third link in this golden chain, as it's called. And the term actually is called, C-A-L-L-E-D, called. Look what it says there. These whom he predestined, he also called. Now, note very carefully, I tried to give it some emphasis when I was reading through it, but it's God who's the one who's the author. God is the author of this. He's the one who's doing it. It's God the Father who's calling sinners to himself through Christ. And again, note very carefully what it says in the text that who God is calling. He is calling those whom he has foreknown. He's calling those whom he has predestined. Verse 29 again, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called. So he is only calling these. Right? These whom he predestined. He's calling all of these, these whom he predestined. Those whom he foreknew. James Boyce says this is where God reaches down from eternity into time to save sinners. Stephen Lawson says uh, something very similar. He says, so this is where the eternal will of God in eternity past becomes real with time. Where God's salvation that he purposed in eternity past, this is where it invades time. This is where it connects with human hearts. This is where it's applied to individual lives. So those whom God calls are going to hear, and uh, they're going to actually respond to his call. They're going to believe on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're going to commit their lives to him. Now, the word itself called this kaleo in the Greek. It just means to call, to call aloud, to utter in a loud voice, to invite, and more specifically, to invite by name. And then, even more specifically, really to summons someone. To summon someone from one place to another place. To summon someone to come to you. And it's again, it's God who is summoning people to himself through Christ. It's God who is summoning people from the realm of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved son, the kingdom of light. The, The word called is used 147 times in the New Testament and seven times in the book of Romans. And predominantly, whenever the word is used in its various forms, call, called, calling, etc., Predominantly, when it's used in the New Testament uh, with reference to salvation, it speaks almost uniformly to the call of God where he ushers men into the state of salvation. That's what it's talking about. So again, uh, the word called is most often referred to as effectual calling. Effectual in the sense that it has an effect. Uh, Some people like effective calling. Some people like efficacious calling. It's all the same thing. So here in Romans 8, the calling of God is effectual in that it leads to an end. In that end, again, look at verse 30, that end is glorification. These whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Again, remember, in the big context of Romans chapter 8, we're talking about the assurance of salvation, and we're talking about the work of the Holy Spirit in our life. How do you know? How, how do you know once you repent and place your faith in Christ that you're going to make it all the way to heaven? How do you know that you're going to make it to glory? Because God's word says so. Right? It's exactly what we said this morning. We either, either the word of God is the authority in the room or men's, fallen men's opinion is. And that's the only options on the table. This is how we know. It's an effect, has an effect because he's also promised he's going to glorify them. 
Theologian Wayne Grudem says this, he says, Effective or effectual calling is an act of God the Father speaking through the human proclamation of the gospel in which he summons people to himself in such a way that they respond in saving faith. As we've been talking through this whole uh, um, section here, God has a plan, right? God has a plan. God has a purpose. It's a, uh, an eternal plan. It's for our good. It's for his glory again. And it's also pre- predem- uh, pre- predominantly, preeminently uh, for, for the ex- exaltation of his son. Salvation is for the exaltation of the son, not the exaltation of the sinner. Christ is the issue. And this plan to exalt God's son, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, it began in eternity past before the foundation of the world is what the text of scripture says, but it's executed in time. So in eternity past, God foreknew, God predestined those whom he would sovereignly choose according to his good pleasure. And in time, he calls them effectually to himself that they might be justified and then glorified as the verse before us lays down. Now, again, in the New Testament, again, almost without exception, when the word called is used, it's used to designate God's display of his sovereign grace and his power towards men. Don't don't turn to all these, but but just listen. Romans 1, 6, among whom you are the called of Jesus Christ, all who are beloved in Rome, called as saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 11, verse 29, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful, faithful through whom you were called into the fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Ephesians 4, 1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which you have been called. 2 Timothy 1, 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. He who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So calling is an act of God. It's an act of his grace, an act of his power. We don't call ourselves. We don't set ourselves apart by sovereign volition. Calling is an act of God and an act of God alone. Therefore, we have to recognize that God's effectual calling really is an act of his sovereign grace. And our calling is the initial step in time of us actually becoming partakers of God's gift of salvation. So God calls and then he effectually saves those whom he has called. Therefore, it's the effectual calling of God that unites us to Christ, that brings us into the fellowship with him, that sets before us a holy life to which we who are truly called will indeed walk in. So again, from eternity past, God's foreknowledge and predestination to in time our calling. From eternity past, God's foreknowledge, God's predestination, in time our calling. And again, call, the word call is the central link in these five, five links, so it's the central point here. Now before we go further on to some other issues, I want us to... Uh, that, that really what allows us to respond to the effectual call of God. I, I want to speak about the call of God that goes out that's not effectual. The, the call of God that goes out to, to men, but men don't come to saving faith in Christ. I originally thought about just taking a couple of minutes here, but there's a lot here, so we'll just kind of slow down here a bit and, and look at this. This call that's mentioned in the Bible that's known as the eternal uh, uh, the external call, the external or the general call. Uh, sometimes it's known as the universal call of the gospel. And, and here in this external call, all men are addressed 
as to their need of God's grace and are commanded to repent of their sin and, and to turn to Christ for salvation. Again, just listen to these passages. Many of them very familiar to you. Uh, Matthew uh, eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Right? There's the command. Come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Matthew 16, verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, here it is, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. John 7, verse 37. If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Romans 10, verse 12. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. Verse 13, for whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So that's the universal call of the gospel. It goes out to all men. Whoever. You want eternal life? Come. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Now, the problem with the universal call, the universal message that goes out, the universal call of the gospel, it's not the message... It's the nature of the recipients, the nature of fallen men. Because the truth is, biblically, left to ourselves, nobody would ever respond. Nobody would ever come. Our nature won't allow us. You can listen, or you can flip back a couple pages. It's in Romans chapter 3. Familiar portion of scripture again. Romans 3 verse 9 says, All are under sin. There's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, and there is not even one. Verse 18 says, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Now, I know we've spoken about this a lot in the past, probably quite often, but unless you have a real understanding of who we are biblically, of our nature before a holy God, we just fail to see how wonderful and amazing God's grace really is to us. Because having a misunderstanding of the nature of unredeemed fallen men uh, is the point where many people stumble and fall. Uh, they fail to really appreciate just how great their salvation in Christ really is. Many people, many people, most men have way too high a view of themselves and way too low a view of God. So uh, understanding biblically man's position apart from Christ uh, alleviates that error. So again, where is mankind on his own? Where is mankind on his own apart from Christ? Again, verse 9, all are under sin. All are under sin. All are under the power of of sin. Next, there is none righteous. How many? I mean, not even one. There's none who understands. There's no one who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Again, collectively, verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. That's mankind apart from Christ. Now, just in case you might think that I'm maybe cherry-picking or proof-texting or whatever, I always go to the same verses to make the same point. It's not just here in the New Testament. You see the same thing in the Old Testament. Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Men haven't changed a bit since that text was written thousands of years ago. All you have to do is read the newspaper, watch the news on on television. 
The wickedness of man is great on the earth, and every intent of the thoughts of his heart is only evil continually. Now, the wickedness of men is not only found in their actions, what they do, murder, steal, rape, commit all kinds of acts of evil. But but the source of the evil is really the issue. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, the, the inward being, the inward person, who we really are, every intent of the thoughts of his heart of mankind is only evil continually. Jesus affirmed that in the New Testament. He affirmed the wickedness of man's uh, heart, that man's wicked actions are first born from the heart. Matthew uh, 15, verse 18, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. Those are, those are the things that defile a man, for out of the heart comes evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. These are the things which defile a man. I made this reference a lot um, before, but when do you go fishing? Not Saturday morning. You go fishing Friday night. When you're sitting in your easy chair going, man, I'd like to go fishing tomorrow morning. So if I'm going to go fishing tomorrow morning, I probably ought to get my boat out or my rod and reel. I probably ought to get up early and get some bait. And I probably ought to, you make plans. And that's the way it is when we sin. It comes from the heart. We make plans in advance before we carry out the action. All of the wickedness in, our, in us is from the inside. Uh, Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Uh, David said, uh, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. Psalm 51, verse 5. From conception, he says, look, I, just like all men, we're all polluted. We're all under sin. We're all in sin. Uh, we've inherited sin from our forefather Adam, the whole lot of us. Again, Romans 3 that I read a couple times actually comes from Psalm 14 and then Psalm 53. So the consistent declaration of the, of the Bible, the consistent declaration of the Scripture, both Old Testament and New Testament, is mankind, is, as the theologians would say, totally depraved, totally perverted, totally corrupt, totally in the, in the sense of extensive, exhaustive, uh, the entire lot of us, all the way, all of us, all to the very core of our being. Totally, and then the next word is depraved. Uh, uh, the way we use it, and the way it's used in the book of Romans, is that it means to um, fail the test. Uh, men have minds that fail the test. They're, they're unfit. They're reprobate minds. And to be totally, completely across the board to the very core of our being, depraved means that none of us in our natural sense can do anything good. We cannot do anything good in God's sight. Because before God, we're all sinners. None of us can do good. Romans 8 and 7 says, The mindset on the flesh is hostile towards God. It does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And not only can we not do good, we can't even understand what good is. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. 1 Corinthians 1.21, Since the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, and he can't understand them. So every man, every woman, every person in their, in their natural condition born into this world cannot understand what is good and cannot do anything that is good from a biblical standpoint as it's compared to a holy God. Now again, just stop and think about Jesus Christ when he's here on the earth. During his earthly ministry, the Jews rejected him. John 1 and 11, he came to his own, and those who are his own received him 
No. Right? Why? What was the problem? Well, maybe he wasn't an effective communicator. (laughs) Probably not. Maybe he didn't present the truth well. Probably not. Since he was what? Truth incarnate. I'm the way, the truth, right? He's truth incarnate. So he himself was the truth. The problem was not with Jesus Christ. The problem is not with Jesus Christ. The problem is with men. The problem is this. The light shines in the darkness, and darkness does not comprehend it. John 1, 5. John 3, 19. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to light, lest his deeds should be exposed. We've gone over this repeatedly. And Christ performed many, many miracles in the presence of many men. He undeniably demonstrated his divine power repeatedly. His divine power over sickness, his divine power over disease, his divine power over the natural realm, his divine power over the supernatural realm, his divine power over sin and death. And he proclaimed the truth always. But the Jewish religious leaders blasphemed him. They said he was demonic. They said his power came from from demon, from uh, demons from Beelzebub, right? They never denied his power. They just said it was demonic. That's what they said. And Christ said to them, John 8 and 43, Why do you not understand what I'm saying? Because you can't hear my word. Now they heard words with their ears, with their physical ears, but Christ was speaking about spiritual ears. They, they couldn't understand. They're, they're, he's talking about their inability to understand truth on a spiritual level. Spiritual truth. Matthew 13, 14. In their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled, which says, you will keep on hearing but not understand. You will keep on seeing but not perceive. That's why some, quote-unquote, theologians, some, quote-unquote, Bible students, some people, just normal people you meet on the street, as it were, spend their entire life studying the Bible, yet they don't understand the truth. They either reject Christ as Lord and Savior, or they come up with a wrong understanding of the person of Jesus Christ, a wrong understanding, a misunderstanding of his deity. See the Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses, for example. They study the Bible, so-called. They study and where they come up with a wrong understanding of biblical salvation. See the Roman Catholics. They fail to understand that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and the person of Jesus Christ alone, by a gift of God's grace, completely apart from works. Well, they study all the time, but they come to a wrong understanding of the truth. Some people even memorize the scripture, memorize passages of scripture. And they got their Timothy trophy. Throw back to you, Awana people. I memorized 200. I didn't do it. My sons did, but I never did. 200 verses. It's good. Can you put them together, any kind of cogent connecting thoughts that have any uh, uh, thing that is coherent for you to understand? And the answer for a lot of people is no. It's not because the Bible is unclear. It's not. It's because their understanding is dark. It's because all these categories that I just gave you, they're blind to the truth. Because their hearts are hard to receive the truth. Now, people can, again, hear with their ears the the gospel, and they can even understand to a certain point. But there are many, when you issue the invitation to come, to come to the fountain of living water, to drink, that is uh, that call to come to that fountain is undesirable to them. Therefore, they turn away. They walk away from it. 
I've seen it countless times in my life, and I'm sure you have too. People, I, I think vi- vividly of times we've gone to uh, uh, to Brazil with large uh, uh, groups of basketball players or soccer players, and there's lots of people, hundreds of people, watching at halftime. There's a gospel presentation, and they're all gathered around to watch, and the gospel is presented, and you know what they do? They turn and walk away. I mean, you've seen it. People presented with the gospel of grace, their only hope of eternal salvation, only hope of, uh, of forgiveness of sin and peace with God, many people just turn and walk away from it. Why is that? It's because of the nature of man. It's the nature of the natural man. He cannot do good. He can't understand good. The Bible says he can't even desire what's good. Again, that's called depravity, the pit of depravity. That's why God says, look, mankind's only hope is if I come, God says, mankind's only hope is if I come and I do open-heart surgery. That's what every man needs. They need open-heart surgery. Ezekiel 11, verse 19, I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Right? That's what men need. They need heart surgery. Because the heart is the natural man's problem. He has a heart of stone. He has a heart that's dead, lifeless, can't do anything in the spiritual realm. What he needs is a heart of flesh. He needs a flesh. He needs a heart that is, in the sense, alive, that is fresh, that is live, or spiritually reborn. So he can so he can understand the truth and do and desire what God says is good. Because again, the natural man born in the world has a stony heart, not receptive to the things of God. So there's a universal call of the gospel that goes out to all men everywhere. And again, here it is: whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The problem with the universal call of the gospel is the nature of the recipients, the nature of fallen men. Again, left to ourselves, we're not going to respond to God's gracious offer of salvation because our nature won't allow us to do so. Now, there are two stories in the New Testament, two related stories, that help vividly bring this to the surface. You can see it very easily. So that you can understand the issue of men refusing God's gracious offer of forgiveness of sin um, uh, because of who they are on a natural level. We only have time to look into one of them. They're kind of similar stories. One's found in Matthew 22. The other's in Luke 14. And it's about Christ telling a parable of a king who's preparing a great wedding feast for his son. He sends his servants out with an invitation for all to come. Turn over to, to Matthew. Back to Matthew 22. In Matthew 22, at the top of the, top of the chapter, verse 1, uh, is the third of what is known as the judgment parables. The judgment parables are given in response to um, the Jewish religious leaders who maliciously challenge Christ's authority. So it's a dramatic parable. It's a powerful parable that is directed specifically at those religious leaders and really all uh, unbelieving uh, Israel whom uh, they, the religious leaders represent. And it has a far-reaching significance uh, and application, uh, especially into our own day. So in the context, Christ is speaking about himself and the kingdom of God that has, again, past, present, future aspects. For three years, he's been preaching, teaching the gospel of the kingdom of grace, includes himself as the Messiah, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. He's been offering himself, offering his kingdom to the people of Israel. But for three years, or at the end of the three years, pretty much most of the people had rejected him. So here's a straightforward account, again, a vivid picture uh, of the rejection of Christ among men. The gospel call goes out to guests, and all guests are bid to come to this royal feast that the king is going to put on in honor of his son. Matthew 22, verse 1. 
Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now, again, the Jews believed the kingdom of heaven was reserved for them and them only. So again, this is speaking right to them in the context. Now, a royal, I mean, a wedding feast, we just had one, right? A wedding is a pretty big deal. It's a big celebration now. But a royal wedding feast, boy, that's the ultimate. The ultimate celebration for the king, the ultimate celebration for the king's son. Uh, And in the culture here, not like ours, lasted a day. These sometimes lasted a week. It's a time of joy, excitement, happiness. It's not only an exciting time, but the importance the importance and the magnificence of the event cannot be overestimated. Guests would come from everywhere. They would stay at the house of the groom's parents for the entire occasion, and all their needs, needs would be met and provided by the Father. Verse 3, he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. So the first guests that were to come were those who had been previously invited, and that's a pretty great honor. Pretty high on to be invited to the wedding of the king's son. Now, it's not there in the text, but you'd have to imagine that uh, people would be showing off that invitation, wouldn't you? Man, if you got an invitation to the king's son's wedding, you'd be showing off that invitation to your friends, to your neighbors. You'd be bragging to everybody. Well, I don't want to say much, but hey, you know what? Guess who got an invitation to the, to the wedding feast? Did you, Right? And they'd be bragging they were invited. And again, it's a great uh, privilege. But with that great privilege comes a great responsibility. They already knew that the wedding was coming. And they already knew that they were expected to be there. So again, to be a pre-invited guest to this feast was amongst the highest honors that anyone could ever have bestowed upon them. So what happens next in the text really is inconceivable. The text says, and they were unwilling to come. He sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. So the rejection of the invitation uh, uh, to attend the wedding feast constituted really disloyalty to the king and a disrespect to the son. Again, to get a wedding invitation from the king was an honor, but it was also an obligation and really an unbelievably serious event to reject the king's favor. But amazingly, unlike many monarchs, this king is humble. He's patient, he's kind. And in the face of open rebuke and insult, this is what happens, verse 4. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fat and livestock. All are butchered and everything is ready to come to the wedding feast. So again, the king is gracious. He's kind to those who deliberately spurn him. He he continues to offer an extended invitation to come, even after his goodness has been ignored and uh, rejected. Verse 5. But they paid no attention and went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The people who have been invited are so preoccupied with themselves, they purposely reject the invitation of the king to stop working and come to the king's son's wedding feast. They paid no attention to the king. They went their own way. And unbelievably, isn't that a vivid picture of men today, right? Men are concerned about themselves. They're concerned about their own personal interests, their own issues. 
And again, stop and consider the beauty, the grandeur, the honor of attending a royal wedding feast. And you're turning that down for the sake of the normal, everyday, mundane, self-serving life that you're already living. They have no concern about the honor of the king. They have no concern about the honor of the son. They only care, care again about their own personal interests. And not only that, look what comes next. It just gets more and more unbelievable. Verse 6, the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed him. So you have apathy in verse 5, then you have outright rebellion in verse 6, and that all stands in great contrast to the gracious forbearance of of the king in verse 4. So again, to kill the messenger of the king is an unthinkable affront to the king's goodness. And contempt for the king's uh, messengers demonstrates contempt for the king himself. Mistreating and killing the king's slaves is the height of flagrant, arrogant rebellion. Now again, who's listening to the story? Who's the audience? It's the Jewish religious leaders. Again, the parable is about the kingdom of heaven. They don't need interpretation. They get it. They, they, They hear very clearly. They knew in the context the king was God. The invited guests were Israel, God's chosen people. And they knew Christ and his claim to be the son of God. They knew that Jesus was speaking directly to them, to the rebels. Those who had the truth incarnate right before them. The slaves in the parable are all the people that God has sent throughout time, preaching and teaching. Those prophets of God who he sent declare the gospel of grace. Again, whether it be Old Testament prophets or John the Baptist of the New Testament or any other New Testament preachers are sent by God. Those who refuse to come are preoccupied with themselves. And in essence, they're secular-minded. They don't have any interest in things that are spiritual. They're secularists. They're only concerned about the here and now materialistic, only concerned about getting ahead, only concerned about making money. Those who are overtly hostile to the king and the king's people are invariably those who are involved in false religious systems of all kinds, right? Anything and everything is acceptable in the culture and around the world except the truth. And we'll listen to and receive anything except when an ambassador from Christ comes or for Christ comes and declares the truth because that is too narrow-minded. We're not going to listen. So the king sends messengers, and again, on more than one occasion, and he displays his grace, his forbearance, again, his willingness to forgive those who reject him. However, the truth is the king's graciousness is one day going to come to an end. And those who reject the king's offer of grace are going to face him in judgment, verse 7. But the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. That that prophecy is literally fulfilled uh, in 70 AD when the Roman general Titus comes, he conquers Jerusalem, he kills more than a a million, one hundred thousand Jews and countless other thousands of Jews that were killed in Palestine, throughout Palestine, Uh, old and young men and women, priests, lay people, everybody slaughtered. Verse 8 says, when he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited are not worthy. Now, on one level, nobody's worthy. But these were unworthy in the sense that they rejected the king's gracious offer. Uh, They refused his invitation to come. It was their own act of rejection. So the pre-invited guests aren't coming. They won't come. 
So then you go and you invite everybody to come. Verse 9. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. That's the Great Commission. That's go and make disciples of all nations. That's to take the offer of the gospel, the free offer of the gospel, uh, the universal offer of the gospel to all men. Proclaim it everywhere. Go to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. Verse 10, Thus slaves who went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, both wicked and moral sinners, uh, again, are in need of grace, so he invites everybody. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So now you have some level of success, right? Partially because the servants of the king are obedient. They obey the command of the king. They go out into the streets and gather all they can find. Which is probably just a little bit of a reminder to us. That's exactly what we're called to do. We're called to go, right? The command of the king is to go. Not wait for people to come, but to go. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite them to the wedding feast. So the command to go is given. The command is obeyed. But now something funny happens. It's all of a sudden evident there's an intruder. An intruder in the wedding feast, verse 11. The king came back to look over the dinner guests, and he saw a man there who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Verse 12, and he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And the man was speechless. So again, here's a man who's invited to come to the feast. Again, all are called, both good and evil. And in the context, since men came from all over the place, since they came from all the different highways and whatever, uh, they couldn't have been expected to provide themselves the proper wedding attire, the proper wedding garment, so the king would have done this for them. He would have provided the clothes they needed so they would have been properly dressed at the wedding. But here's a man who somehow has gotten in and he lacks the proper garment, which means in the context of the story that he purposely refused it. He purposely refused the king's own gracious provision because everybody else at the wedding feast except this one man is properly dressed. And this man purposely again refuses the king's provision, which is in some ways even a greater affront to the king as those who are compared to those who refuse to come to the banquet whatsoever. Because this man is committing open rebellion in the presence of the king. Now, the wedding clothes that this man needs, that everybody else is dressed in, is the garment of the righteousness of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, without which no man will ever enter the kingdom of heaven. No man's going to this ultimate marriage feast dressed, as it were, in the robes of his or her own righteousness. So, more than likely, this man here represents a professed believer. It's a person who has been invited to come, and they actually do come. They, they come to church every once in a while, or maybe they come to church on a regular basis, and they're there in the presence of the king, as it were, but yet they've rejected Christ's own righteousness somewhere along the way, and they're counting on their own righteousness, their own clothing. And pride, most likely, is the cause of this man rejecting the righteousness of Christ and the garment of the king, and pride in, again, failing to admit his own personal spiritual bankruptcy, his own spiritual poverty. Therefore, this man is guilty, really, of a great sin against the king and against the king's goodness. Now, in the text, the man has nothing to say. He's speechless, but the king isn't. 
The king's going to speak, verse 13. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him out in the, into the outer darkness, and in that place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Bind him hand and foot, throw him into the outer darkness, in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, into a place of inconsolable grief and unending torment. A place commonly referred to in the Bible as hell. For those who presumptuously think they can come into the king's feast dressed in their own terms, or dressed on their own terms, dressed in their own way, they can come to the king's feast on their own terms, dressed any way they want. Now, I told you at the top that this is really the third judgment parable. And so the whole purpose of these judgment parables is really to condemn the self-righteous who are standing before Christ. And I'll tell you, the anger of the Jewish religious leaders at this moment, the Jewish hearers, is heating up because they're going to soon put Christ to death. And then Christ ends the parable with these these words, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called. So the invitation to the wedding feast has gone out to many. Again, that's representative of the general call of the gospel. In the context, again, Christ said to uh, emphasize to the Jewish audience who considered themselves, and they were in some sense, the God's chosen people. But he's trying to tell them that, listen, the outward call it is not sufficient for salvation. There has to be an efficacious call, an effective call. And there's a universal call, a general call, an external call for all to come. All come to the kingdom of heaven. All come to the banquet feast of the Son. For whoever will may come. Again, it's a universal call to repentance from sin. A universal call to faith in Christ. Again, many hear, but few come. Why is that? It's pretty simple. Because not everybody wants God. Not everybody wants the king. There are many who claim they want God, but they want to come to God on their own terms. But those who do indeed come to the banquet feast come because of their willing acceptance. Again, they want to come. And they come because of God's sovereign purpose and God's gracious Provision or the king's sovereign purpose in the context, the king's gracious provision. So what you have here in this parable in Matthew 22 is like you have many places in the Bible, you have this tension, right? You have this balance between human responsibility and divine sovereignty. Again, note in the context, all are called. Two different responses. There's the call, the called who reject the offer, and then the call who come, the called who come. And the called who reject the invitation to the banquet feast did so willingly. Again, look what the text says. They, they refused to come. Boy, the king was gracious. Pre-invited guests, the, the king was even more gracious. He called more than once. But again, the text says that still they were unwilling to come. Therefore, their exclusion from the kingdom of heaven and the banquet feast is just. And the king's anger towards them is also just. Because if you reject God's free offer of mercy, God's free offer of grace through the person of Jesus Christ, if you reject forgiveness, nothing remains except God's wrath. So you have the called who reject the offer, then you have the called who are chosen. Again, verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Those who were chosen, they enter into the banquet feast. The 
kingdom of God because of the grace of the king. They really have no right to be there. They weren't on the pre-invited list. They were chosen, and chosen only because of God's sovereign grace in his choosing of them and his effectual calling of them. Now, somebody might here stop and make a protest. Well, something I said earlier about the universal call of the gospel goes out. But, uh, and again, who, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Uh, the, the problem I said with the universal call of the gospel is the nature of fallen men. It, it, it's, it's us. And left to ourselves, we would never respond. Therefore, the argument that is made by some is that men are, because of who they are in sin, they are unable to respond to God's gracious uh, uh, offer of the gospel. And that's true. But does that inability to come to God and God passing over them and selecting others, does that violate somehow some sense of justice? And the short answer to that is absolutely not. Inability doesn't alleviate or dismiss man's responsibility. Inability in no way alleviates or dismisses man's responsibility to respond to the gospel offer. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Inability to respond to the universal offer of the gospel of grace is a sign of rebellion against God. It's a sign of sin. And inability, again, in no way is an excuse for rejecting the gospel. Inability is a sign of God's assessment of men is true, that all have sinned and all fall short of God's glory. So the responsibility for man's condition before a holy God for his nature, his inability to choose that which is good is man's. Man alone, because God makes no man a sinner. God doesn't make men sinners. Men are sinners because they're sinners. Men are sinners because they're Adam's offspring, born sinners. And they have individually and personally, each one, rebelled against God. And the reason that a man refuses the gospel of grace is that he just flat does not want God to rule over him. Why? Because the natural man hates God, hates Christ. And again, mankind alone bears the responsibility for his or her own sin. Man is a guilty rebel. Man is a child of disobedience, a just object of God's wrath. And because man is in sin in the natural level, he not only hates both God and Christ, again, he hates God's messengers. The natural man hates the messengers of the gospel, and he kills them. That's the history of redemption, right? Wicked men killing God's ambassadors of grace who are just offering pardon of sin. We were talking about this a couple of weeks ago in the men's ministry. And we're called in the Bible as believers, ambassadors for Christ. If you're an ambassador, you represent a sovereign. So we're all, as believers, ambassadors for Christ. We belong to another king in a different kingdom. And we don't represent our own message. We represent the message of the sovereign who sent us. And the king who sent us from another kingdom into this kingdom, from the kingdom of light into this kingdom of darkness, has one message, surrender. That's it. I mean, if you want to boil it all down, that's the message. Surrender. Give up. Repent. Before it's too late. Because it's appointed in a man once to die, and then comes judgment is coming. There, there are no other, there, there's no other ships leaving the dock to a different king and kingdom and different realm and a different kind of story. No, this is the, the, the message of the sovereign. Repent. 
Give up before it's too late. That's the message in a nutshell of the gospel. And men hate that. They don't want to listen to that, the natural man. Throughout the history of redemption, wicked men have killed God's ambassadors of grace who just offer God's free offer of forgiveness of sin. And again, many are called. Again, universally, it's called. Everybody's called to come to the banquet feast, come to the kingdom of heaven. But many are unwilling to come. And again, it's their choice. That's what the text says. It wasn't forced upon them. They were unwilling to come. In a very similar parallel uh, parable over in Luke uh, 14, verse 18 says, they all like begin to make excuses. You ever heard of that from anybody? When you present the gospel, they go, well, you know, I got to go do this or maybe tomorrow or whatever, you know. Again, God calls over and over again, yet they refuse to come. Now, some people I know complain about the doctrines that we're talking about, the doctrines of predestination that say it's harsh, it's unfair, because only the elect of God get to come to heaven. But again, that's not so. A great thing about thinking biblically about salvation, a great thing about biblical Calvinism, not hyper-Calvinism, biblical Calvinism, the biblical view of salvation, listen, everybody gets what they want. Everybody gets what they want. Those who hate God and hate Christ, in time, those who refuse to come to God in Christ, get what they want. They get a godless and Christless eternity. That's what they wanted. Nobody really goes to hell against their own will. Does that sound strange? Nobody goes to hell against their own will. They get what they wanted. Because they love their sin. John 3, 19, I read it earlier, I'll read it again. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil, for everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. Men get what they want. Those who refuse to come to God's free offer of salvation end up justly paying for the penalty of their error. For all eternity. A place where the Bible says, Christ says, the fires never quench, the worm never dies. A place of unending torment and agony, a place originally created for the devil and his angels, which means that men should never be there because provision has been made for them so they don't have to be there. They don't have to go there. But many will be there because they love their sin. They refuse to come to God through Christ. They refuse the gospel of grace. Therefore, the responsibility for their condition and their eternal position belongs to them. And I was just thinking about this. You know, by the way, I know Christians like to argue over these things, but do you know non-Christians never, over, <laughs> never argue over the doctrines of grace? Never. Non-Christians never argue against the doctrines of predestination and foreknowledge. For those who reject Christ, all you have to ask them is this. Are you sorry for your sin? Will you trust Christ as Savior and Lord? Do you love God with all your heart, all your mind, and all your strength? And you know the answer that the non-Christian is going to give you. Now, on the other hand, 
The one who answers, yes, I do hate my sin. Yes, I want to come to God through Christ. Yes, I I love God. I love Christ. Christ says, I'll never turn them away. They may come. Whosoever will may come. Because God desires to save sinners. God delights in saving sinners. Five verses from the end of the Bible. From the end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verse 17. Five verses from the end, there's a final call to salvation. The Spirit and the Bride say, Come. Let the one who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take water of life without, co- uh, without cost. God is gracious to men. And God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. But to come to God, you have to have your sin forgiven. To enter into the banquet feast and the marriage supper of the Lamb, to enter into the kingdom of heaven, you have to be born again. You have to have a new nature. A new heart. A new nature. A new heart that desires God, that desires Christ, that, that comes to repentance, that completely rejects sin, that turns one's back on sin, and embraces Christ in total. To come to the kingdom, to the banquet feast, to the kingdom of heaven, the banquet feast of, of the... Uh, king's son, you have to have on the right clothing. You have to have on the righteousness of Christ. How does that ever happen? How can that ever happen? It begins in time by responding to the call of God, to the effectual call of God. And again, as we do future future studies, we're going to see that's going to lead to regeneration, a new heart, a start on a of heart being replaced by a, a, a soft heart, a heart that's alive to God, to the things of God, to the things of Christ. Renewed generations are going to lead to faith and repentance. We would call that conversion. It's going to lead to justification, right standing before God. And justification leads to adoption, sanctification, perseverance, and finally, ultimately, glorification. Lord willing, all topics will take up as we continue to study further. But as we close, I want you to just take your Bible and turn over just a few Book, turn over to the book of Ephesians. I just want you to see this one last time before we're done for tonight. I just want you to be encouraged and, again, strengthened by what God says. His wonderful doctrinal truth that he wants us to understand and know the doctrines of foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling. And, again, I want you to see them as acts of God's great mercy, God's great grace, God's eternal love. Look at Ephesians 1.3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. I don't see anything in there particularly scary. I don't see anything in there that would want me to say, though, God's a monster, as a lot of people fallaciously say. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that now is working in the sons of disobedience, 
And among them we all too formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. Verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, and by grace you've been saved. Doctrines of grace are exactly that. They're the doctrines of God's kindness to men through Christ. They're meant to encourage us, to give us hope, to cause us to praise even more the glory of our great God and our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, to walk worthy before them and then to walk, uh, and again, in a manner that's pleasing, but, but to just have a greater love for them in all that we do because they're worthy. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our time together in your word in this uh, short little study here in this one middle link here in this golden chain. And we just thank you for your kindness to us through Christ. And um, we just uh, uh, praise you for your grace and thank you for being so kind to us to open our eyes to truth. For any who perhaps are listening here in the room or um, by way of the live stream that don't know Christ, I pray that this would be the the day that they would repent, take off their dirty clothes and their own righteousness and trust only in the righteousness of the person of Christ. Be clothed in the righteousness that God provides through his son that allows men and women to enter into the banquet feast to the marriage of the the lamb. We thank you for our time together this morning and this evening. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen.